This is the first talk in a series of talks on the five fundamentals. Titled, The First Fundamental, Consciousness Alone is Absolutely Real. Recorded September 15, 1996 at the Center for Sacred Sciences in Eugene, Oregon. Several years ago, I tried to sum up what I teach in five fundamentals. So I thought I would give a series of talks dealing with the five fundamentals and the seven stages. Uh, let me just say that the five fundamentals aren't new truths. They don't try to express any new truths, because from mystic's point of view, there are no new truths. There's just the eternal truth, and all the mystics uh, that have ever tried to speak about it, from whatever culture or tradition they come from, have always acknowledged that. And they just tried to state it in a ways that will be useful for their contemporaries in their own time and place. So that's what I've tried to do with these five fundamentals. I've tried to distill out the fundamental principles of all these teachings, and then tried to restate them in a more generic way. So with that little preface, let's plunge into the first fundamental. And the first fundamental is, consciousness alone is absolutely real. The appearance of an objective world distinguishable from a subjective self is but the imaginary form in which consciousness perfectly realizes itself. So, before we try to unpack this, let me read you a little something by Lao Tzu from the Tao Te Ching, the seminal work of Chinese Taoism. And Lao Tzu writes, the way that can be spoken of is not the constant way. The name that can be named is not the constant name. So he's saying that everything he's going to talk about here falls short of the truth, which as Teresa de Vila said is indescribable ultimately. And you'll find this in all mystical traditions, this disclaimer that in some sense, all the words that are used are inadequate. Truly speaking, the truth that mystics talk about cannot be grasped by words or by thoughts or by concepts because the reality they're talking about, the absolute reality, is all-inclusive. And every time we use a word or a concept or think, we are creating duality. We're creating divisions. So I've often said, when I name this gong, just by naming it, just by naming one thing, I already separate it from everything that is not gong. And so right away I'm involved in duality. This is why Anandamoyamai says, God's true being cannot be described, for when speaking of being, there is the opposite of non-being. When trying to express him by language, he becomes imperfect. So the minute we use words, uh, language of any sort, we have to recognize that in a, in a certain sense, we're actually veiling the truth. But we're trying to then use the veil to transcend the veil. And this is why she continues, and she says, all the same, in order to use words, he is spoken of as sat-chit-ananda, being consciousness bliss. Now, these are Hindu terms. She was the great Hindu mystic of this century, so Sat, Chit, Ananda are 
the three primary ways of describing this fundamental absolute reality. So here on the one hand, she said, in the same breath, if we use the words, we're falsifying this absolute reality, but uh, if we want to use words, and we have to use words, she's offering three words that will at least point to this. And of course, all mystics in all traditions have to use words if there's going to be a teaching. Lao Tzu, in spite of saying the way that can be named is not the true way, went on to write 81 verses about that way, and he named it the Tao, the way. The Sufis call this absolute reality Allah. That's the most common term, common to all of Islam. But they also call it things like Al-Haq, which means the truth or the real. Uh, Christians call it God, and sometimes Christian mystics will call it the Godhead the underlying principle out of which even the Trinity manifests. <clears throat> Buddhists are very reluctant to use any positive concept for this, and most of their philosophy is in the form of a via negativa, a negation. Uh, as Nagarjuna formulated the four-cornered argument that goes something like, you can't say that it is, you can't say that it isn't. You can't say that it is both is and isn't. You can't say that it neither is nor that it isn't. Uh, that's three of them. That was all four. That was all four? Yeah. Okay, good. <laughs> but nevertheless, uh, especially the Mahayana Buddhists came to realize they have to use some kind of positive term. So what are the terms they use? Things like one mind or Buddha mind. So why do we pick now for our fundamental the term consciousness instead of Buddha mind or being or something like that. Well, for one reason, in some traditions, as in Hinduism, it's very explicit. Throughout the classical Hindu literature, this is a description of the absolute reality, going all the way back to the Upanishads. And they say, he is the eternal among things that pass away, pure consciousness of conscious beings. When you read translations of Buddhist texts, Consciousness is rarely used for the underlying fundamental reality because it's almost always used for uh, another Buddhist term, vijnana, which is a Sanskrit or Pali term, I'm not sure which. But when they use this word vijnana, if you read carefully, it always refers to a subject-object kind of consciousness, a self-consciousness. Uh, I don't know how this got started in uh, the translations, but anyway, most Buddhist translators stick to this. So when you read about consciousness in a Buddhist text, they almost always mean this, the subject-object consciousness, and they'll, they'll always talk about it as not being having any ultimacy. It's very ephemeral, as indeed it is. But this is not the way that I'm using the word consciousness. And in fact, if we wanted to get a stricter definition, we could follow the definition Dr. Wolf gave it, and he said this is consciousness without an object and without a subject. So when we use consciousness in this fundamental, that consciousness alone is absolutely real, we don't mean the consciousness that is uh, used when translators translate the Buddhist uh, text. But as I said before, Mahayana Buddhists particularly found they had to use some positive term, and it's usually a very close term, at least the translation is, one mind. Buddha mind. One of the most precise here is a translation of a Tibetan term, which is primordially pure intrinsic awareness. That's beautiful. 
primordially pure, intrinsic awareness. The Sufis are very fond of pointing to a Quranic verse which says about Allah, nothing is like him. He is the seeing, the hearing. And then Ibn Arabi, a great Sufi, comments on this. And he says, so he is the spirit of the cosmos, its hearing, its sight, and its hand. Through him the cosmos hears, through him it sees, through him it speaks, through him it grasps, through him it runs. So if we just wanted to update this a little bit, we could say God is the consciousness of the cosmos. This is what he's talking about by the spirit. And he says very specifically, it's the hearing, the seeing, that consciousness that hears, that sees, that perceives. If you read through the uh, medieval Christian mystics, you'll never run across the word consciousness. That's for a very good reason. It didn't enter the language until the 17th or 18th century, meaning what it means today. It comes from a Latin root, which means to know. But used as this sense of being aware, of awareness, uh, this is fairly recent in the history of the development of the English language. And it is very interesting because it came into use precisely at the time that the materialist paradigm was taking over the intellectual life of Europe. And the old uh, Christian paradigm, worldview, was in the eyes of the modern Europeans becoming obsolete. So it replaced terms like spirit, soul, intellect. Intellect used to be used in medieval times not as the thinking mind, but as what illuminates everything, the light of the intellect. So those terms were going out. They were passé. But you needed some term because it's just a fact of our experience. We are aware. We are conscious. So consciousness came into play there. So if you go back and read through the Christian mystics, you won't find the actual term consciousness. But what do they talk about? Jesus called God an invisible spirit. Uh, what is spirit? Well, spirit is something that's not tangible. It's not physical. It's not something you can touch. But it's alive. It's aware. It's a presence. John, who wrote the Gospel of John, uh, describes the Word, the, this is the Christ, not as the physical embodied Christ, but the spiritual Christ, as the true light which lighteth every man that comes into the world. Couldn't we very easily talk about that as consciousness? Isn't this what lights everyone uh, who comes into the world? And Augustine and many Christian mystics use this metaphor of, of light. In fact, mystics all over the world use it. But Augustine says, distinct from these objects, both corporal and incorporal, in other words, bodies and even ideas, is the light by which the soul is illumined, in order that it may see and truly understand everything, either in itself or in the light. For the light is God himself. So again, it's a different terminology here, but it's getting to the same idea. That knowingness, that which illuminates, that which is the basis of all understanding. It doesn't even, in Augustine's term, come from God. It is God. So consciousness is a pretty good modern rendition of these older terms here. So this is why we chose consciousness for the first fundamental. Uh, one of the reasons. The second reason is consciousness carries very little 
theological baggage. And at this historical juncture, a lot of people have lost their faith in the old traditions. And so if you start talking about God or Brahman or the Tao or something like that, you already have an obstacle to a further discussion. But consciousness, at least to us moderns, seems to be a pretty obvious fact of existence. So at least whenever I talk about consciousness, I've never heard anybody stop and say, wait a minute, I don't believe in no consciousness. So it's a good, a good basis to begin a, a dialogue, a discussion, with somebody who may not have any spiritual or religious belief. And one of the advantages of living in a time like this is you can start a spiritual path without believing in anything. You just have to start investigating yourself, what is actually here. And consciousness, most people anyway recognize, is here, right now, just always present. You make a little bit of an error about this from a mystic's point of view, because most people think they have a consciousness. If you examine it, you might start to see that actually whatever you think is yourself arises in consciousness, rather than there's something standing outside of consciousness that has it. But this is something you can inquire and investigate for yourself. That's the beauty of it. And then finally, there's a third reason to use consciousness uh, at this time and place, and that is consciousness has become a key term in the debates among physicists about how to interpret quantum mechanics. And quantum mechanics is now the basis of all physics, so it's the basis of all physical science. And the reason this term has come into play, because if you read the physics of the last century, the old Newtonian physics, you never hear any physicists talking about consciousness. The reason that consciousness has suddenly entered the arena of debate and discourse is because the equations of quantum mechanics describe subatomic particles as waves of probability of existing in a particular place. Now, first of all, let's realize that everything is made up of subatomic particles, so this applies to all matter, not just subatomic particles, because, uh, you know, again, this gong, there's nothing in this gong but subatomic particles. Now, a lot of people who know something about quantum mechanics think that it says, well, matter is either waves or particles. That's not quite correct. The wave part of it isn't the material wave like a wave moving through the ocean. It's a purely mathematical wave. It's a wave that describes the probability of a subatomic particle, an electron, or a whole gong appearing someplace. Now, the interesting thing is, when we go look and observe, the gong appears right here. That wave of probabilities vanishes. <clears throat> There's no more probability, it's now fact, actual. So that description just vanishes. It's called the collapse of the wave function, technically. Now, it's weird. <laughs> Apparently, there's something about our observation, the, the act of conscious observation, that makes things actually appear where they appear. This is why uh, Werner Heisenberg, who was one of the founders of quantum mechanics, wrote, the observation itself changes the probability function discontinuously. It selects of all possible events the actual one that has taken place. So before I look at this gong, 
it isn't actually there. It has the probability of being there. And in fact, because it's a gong, a nice big chunk of matter, it has an extraordinarily high probability of being where I saw it last. But in the quantum mechanical description of it, it is not there physically until I look. So it seems that the observation is what collapses this wave function, this conscious observation. If left unobserved, this wave function just continues to expand. This is why uh, the Nobel laureate physicist Eugene Wigner wrote, It is at this point that consciousness enters the theory unavoidably and unalterably. If one speaks in terms of the wave function, its changes are coupled with the entering of impressions into our consciousness. When this appears in consciousness, the wave function collapses. So, in material science, the old material science, based on Newtonian mechanics, matter was conceived as the absolute reality. And consciousness was conceived as an epiphenomenon of matter. When all this matter got together in, in living life forms and it all got very complex, somehow consciousness arose. Nobody ever was able to explain exactly how that happened, but that was the general theory. But quantum mechanics seems, anyway, to flip this on its head that matter is an epiphenomena of consciousness. So what this allows for, at least, is a dialogue, if not a reapproachment between mysticism and science, religion and science. And so if we use the term consciousness for the fundamental underlying reality, not only does it tie into the way mystics have talked about it traditionally, but it also ties in to now what's being debated and discussed in scientific circles. So it, it creates a little bridge here. So it's very convenient to use it for that reason. But why say consciousness alone is absolutely real? So what does reality mean? Let's try and get a handle on that word. And it actually has several meanings, and these meanings have been traditional. I mean, not just even in our culture, but traditional in other cultures. People have always looked for certain qualities or characteristics. One is unchanging and eternal. That's why the Upanishads say he is the eternal among things that pass away. In our experience, all this phenomena rises and passes away. It's in constant flux. Is there anything underlying all that which doesn't change, is the question, that is real, that is substantial in that sense? The Quran says everything perishes except his face. His meaning Allah, which is this kind of poetic way of saying this, that all this world arises and passes, but uh, if we but knew it, if we could but perceive it, there's something under this, the face of Allah, that doesn't perish and pass away. Augustine writes, what is that which is, meaning that which is real, which really is, that which is eternal? For that which is always in one way and then another is not for it does not endure. That which always is changing isn't really real. You can't actually really get a handle on it. It's interesting if you really analyze this closely, if you, for instance, look at something that changes quickly, let's say uh, smoke formations from a campfire. If you want to say, what is that? You'll never actually be able to define its form because the next moment its form has changed. The Buddhists have a wonderful way of saying this, that 
all this phenomena is threatening to come into existence. It almost comes into existence, but it never quite makes it, because it's always passing away, even as it's arising. So he says it's not really real because it doesn't endure, anything that changes constantly. It is not altogether non-existent, but it does not exist in the highest sense. Now, this is very important, because sometimes mystics talk about all this is illusion, all this is imaginary, and that's true, but then people interpret that to mean that there's nothing there. And then they think of when mystics talk about states like nirvana or something, that nirvana is an absolute vacuum, blank, you know, like a physical void. And so mystics are always very careful to say they're not talking about appearances don't appear. In some sense, they are existent. They appear, obviously, to everybody. But they are not fundamentally, they are not absolutely real. So, in our terms, they have a kind of a quasi-reality. Saying that consciousness alone is absolutely real asserts that while this, we recognize this obvious fact, appearances appear in consciousness, that they don't have this characteristic of being eternal, unchanging. So what mystics claim is consciousness does. Again, it's not something you take as dogma, but it's something to investigate on your own. In fact, it's not that consciousness doesn't change in time, it's that consciousness actually is eternal in the sense of being outside of time. Time appears in consciousness. Consciousness doesn't appear in time. Whatever you mean by time, if you look at a clock, it's appearing in consciousness. If you think time is related to change, where does change take place? In consciousness. You'll never find any time outside of consciousness. And that's the mystic's meaning of eternal, not that it goes on and on forever. You know, you don't go to heaven and sit around playing uh, harps for all eternity. That's not the meaning of eternal life. Eternal life is, as the mystics talk about it, the eternal now. This present moment is eternal. Where is the past? Where is the future? Is there anything but the now ever, really? Or is the past and future imaginary? And even the images we have of past and future, where do they exist now? And where? In consciousness. Then a second meaning of reality is that it is self-existent in the sense that it does not depend for its existence on other things, but quite the converse, other things depend on it. So, for instance, we say a mirage isn't real. A mirage that you see in a desert. How many of you have ever seen a mirage, by the way? Or on the road, water, you know? You see it, it appears. It's got a quasi-reality. But we say, well, it really isn't real because it really is sort of this trick that depends on the atmospheric conditions and your location in, in relation to it. Because if you're driving down a road, for instance, as you get closer, it evaporates. So it really wasn't there. It's an epiphenomenon. That's what an epiphenomenon means. Well, what mystics claim is that all of this is an epiphenomena that depends on consciousness. And again, one way to investigate this is to just start observing, have you ever seen anything outside of consciousness? 
And you have to analyze and observe as you go to really follow this through because immediately you think, oh, well, of course there are things outside of consciousness. I mean, Mars is outside of consciousness right now. Well, but is Mars here? There's the idea of Mars, there's the thought of Mars, and where is that taking place? In consciousness. Here's how Bokar Rinpoche, a Tibetan master, describes it. He says, being under illusion means perceiving objective appearances and mental appearances as having independent reality. When illusion ceases, appearances continue to exist, but they are perceived as the manifested aspect of the mind or the natural radiance of the mind. So if we just substitute in consciousness here, it's the same thing. All this is, in Tibetan terms, the manifested aspect of the radiant nature of consciousness. So all this depends on consciousness. Consciousness does not depend on all that. Sounds a little like quantum mechanics here, doesn't it? That all this depends on observation to be, otherwise it isn't. And then finally, in a more psychological vein, we can talk about a reality as having this characteristic of something that is reliable. So absolute reality is something that is absolutely reliable, that you can count on. Get real means you're a flake, you know, get real so I can count on you, rely on you. And we want to know, is something real? Because it's very important for us to know that we can rely on something. So if somebody gives you a medicine and a description, and you say, well, is that really true? I mean, is that the way it works? I mean, you want to know before you take that medicine. And this meaning of reality, absolute reality, foreshadows the next two fundamentals, which I'll be talking about in the future, which have to do with suffering and happiness. And saying that consciousness alone is absolutely real means that in order to become happy, ultimately happy, uh, you have to rely on the ultimate reality. And if you rely on changeable realities, or if you mistake what's changeable, what's in flux, what's ephemeral, as being the ultimate reality, that will always generate suffering, always produce suffering. And one other thing I want to say about consciousness before we move off it, is that consciousness is, that we're talking about here, is not some weirdo consciousness, not some altered state of consciousness. There are altered states of consciousness. They're all ephemeral. But that consciousness that is, as the Quran says, closer to you than your own juggler vein. There is nothing more personal. There is nothing more intimate than consciousness. So this does not just have a philosophical import as an idea to think about. It points to something you can investigate that is always present. Always present. You don't have to wait until you're meditating. You don't have to wait until you have time to sit down and analyze this or whatever. It's always there. So you can always look into this question of what is consciousness. So then what about the second part of this fundamental? the appearance of an objective world distinguishable from a subjective self is but the imaginary form in which consciousness perfectly realizes itself. <sighs> this is a little more complicated. The first one is really just trying to get a handle what we mean by consciousness. But the second statement here really sort of answers, or I shouldn't say answers, points to an answer 
two, two uh, questions. One is, why do objects appear in consciousness at all? And the other is, how does consciousness make these objects appear? How does it realize them? Now, in the, using the term realize in the sense to make manifest, to realize a project that you've dreamed of, for instance. So here's what the Tibetan master Mipam Rinpoche says. All phenomenal existence are present from primordial time in the equalness nature of the single essence, the self-arisen intrinsic wisdom. All phenomenal existence, all phenomena, all forms, all appearances are present from primordial time. They've always been there. They're already present in the equalness nature of the single essence. The equalness nature of the single essence is that fundamental underlying consciousness that has no attributes, has no distinctions. There's this Tibetan Buddhist description here. Maybe they're a little crazy. They hold up in Tibet for thousands of years, you know, get a little ingrown. But then if we listen to the, what the Christians say, uh, here's Dionysius the Arapagate, who's one of the founders of Christian mysticism, and he talks about the archetypes. It says, the archetypes which pre-subsisting in God as a unity produce the essences of all things and which are called in theology predeterminations by which the superessential one preordained and brought into being the whole universe. So in other words, these archetypes, which are the basis of everything else, already pre-existed in the one. In the unity, uh, God as a unity, this is the same as this equalness essence. So in a certain sense, all this phenomena they're saying, all these appearances, all these forms have always been there. It's not that they're created out of scratch, so to speak. It's all been there. It's already enfolded into this primal consciousness, this absolute consciousness. So consciousness itself has no form, but it has the potential for all form. A similar account is given in Sufism. Here's Ibn Arabi again. He says, the reality wanted to see his beautiful names, which is to say his own essence, manifested in an all-inclusive object, i.e. the cosmos, which qualified by existence would reveal to him his own mystery. This gets a little bit more into the motive, if we want to speak that way. The beautiful names in Islam are equivalent of the archetypes in Christianity. They are the principles upon which everything manifests. So the reality wanted to see his beautiful names, which are contained in his essence, manifested in the cosmos, which would be qualified by existence. In other words, it would be given an actual existence, as in quantum mechanics, when you give something that exists in potentia, as Werner Heisenberg put it, give it an actuality, it becomes qualified by existence. We could say, when I observe this wave function, and here this gong appears, I've qualified that possibility with an existence. So that it would reveal to him his own mystery. And this is uh, very close to an even more poetic way the Sufis have of putting this 
When Allah is asked, why did he create all this? He responds, I was a treasure that longed to be known. And so, here, God realizes the cosmos of forms in both senses of the word. Realize to make manifest, to realize a project, but also to realize in the sense of to cognize. Because when it's unmanifest, you can't know it in the same way you know it when it's manifest, when it's out there. This is why Bini Rabi calls all forms, every form, each form, the locus of a divine self-disclosure. This gong is God disclosing himself, herself, to itself. That's all that's going on here, whatever we think is going on. So how does God do this? Which is the second question. Now I'm speaking a little anthropomorphically here, just because it's easier. How does the reality manifest its potentiality? And this is why I brought this blackboard out. This is a crude representation but if you think of the blackboard as representing consciousness itself, pure consciousness, consciousness without any form, without any attributes and so forth, you can see that this blackboard contains already the possibility for the manifestation of any two-dimensional geometrical form. They're all already possible here in this blackboard. So how do I bring them out? Somebody name me a two-dimensional geometric form. Circle. circle. Of course, it's going to be an approximate circle. Right? Now, notice this blackboard contains the possibility of manifesting infinite circles. Because I could, for instance, draw this circle now slightly off. Uh, let's say a quarter of an inch here, and then I could split the distance and draw it an eighth of an inch here, and I could continue splitting the distances. So actually, within even a, a finite space here, I could draw infinite circles. The possibility exists, right? The possibility exists for drawing triangles, parallelograms, whatever sort of two-dimensional object you want. But how do I do it? I have to veil or mask part of the blackboard, don't I? By covering a portion of the blackboard with this chalk, I manifest a form. By blocking out part of consciousness, I manifest a form. Right? Does everybody see that? Another way to... Uh, Describe this if you've ever seen those shadow shows you can do with your hands. You can make animals at night if you have a light shining on a wall. And you can animate them. And people who are good at it can make little sort of puppet shows, a fox and a rabbit and so forth, chasing each other and talking to each other and whatnot. It's all done by what? Blocking out some light. And a form appears. The form is the absence, so to speak, of light. What makes the form visible is the absence of the blackboard. Here's what Ibn Arabi says. He distinguishes parts of the cosmos from other parts. Hence, no distinction takes place except through him, 
for he is identical to what becomes distinguished and to that through which distinction takes place. Is the inside of the circle identical to the outside of the circle? It's all blackboard, isn't it? So every form is a form of God, of the divine, of consciousness. It's not a form of anything else but consciousness. That's, if you like, its substance. Its substance, not in the sense of material substance, it's true substance. And it all is done by making a distinction. And so, he says, he is identical to what becomes distinguished and to that through which distinction takes place. The power to distinguish. The creative power of consciousness is the power to create distinctions. This is why John, of the Gospel of John, says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Now, word here in English is a translation of the Greek term logos. And logos means a lot more than just words. It does mean word. It means speech, word. It also means ratio. It means to measure. It means all the ways we distinguish things. It's the power of distinction. So the creative power of God is the power of distinction. This is why so many traditions mythologically talk about the world coming to be through some sort of divine speech or thought or command. Even in shamanic traditions, the world is the thought in the mind of the creator. It's all recognizing uh, this power that speech is the most obvious manifest aspect of it, as we've talked about before. When we name something, we distinguish. But it's the essence of that, the power to distinguish. Let's try a little experiment here. I want everybody to close your eyes. And then for a moment, just try to wipe your mind blank, just like that blackboard. Just don't think about anything. And then imagine someone's face as vividly as you can. Okay, open your eyes. How many people could do that? There's the power of distinction. You just experienced it. The creative power of distinction. You had a, a blank mind. Hopefully you got your mind at least somewhat blank. And then, boom, a, a form appeared, didn't it? In your mind's eye. Distinguishable from the background. This isn't God sitting up in the sky or Mount Olympus or someplace, this power is closer than your own juggler vein. It's built in. The power of thought. The power to distinguish is, in our language, the power to imagine. Create images out of what consciousness? This is why Ibn Arabi says, Everything other than the essence of the real is intervening imagination and vanishing shadow. So the cosmos only becomes manifest in imagination. 
And this is what mystics mean when they talk about the world is an illusion, it's imaginary, it's maya, all those terms. They've come to have a negative meaning because the problem is not what's going on, but we mistake that for the absolute reality and we literally ignore the absolute reality. But the maya, the term maya is related to magic and creativity etymologically in Sanskrit, and the maya is God's maya. It's what God does for a living. God's an artist who produces all this. That's not the problem. To say the world is imaginary doesn't mean that it has no value. Hamlet is imaginary. It has value. Imaginary means it's an image that has a meaning that points to something. Hamlet is totally imaginary, and yet Hamlet is saturated with meaning because it points to our personal experience. We see in Hamlet something about ourselves. Hamlet reveals something about ourselves. Hamlet manifests something about ourselves to us, back to us, in the way that this treasure reveals something back to God, so to speak. So, to answer the question, why and how this world is created, the only way you can really do it, that I know how to do it, is to speak in terms of an analogy, and that is some sort of creativity, like an artist. God is an artist. And just the way, for instance, if you've ever written anything like fiction or poetry, in a certain sense, it's all already there within you. Otherwise, you couldn't write it. But in a certain sense, until you write it, you don't know it, until it comes out. And then you look at it, and it's not that you've learned anything more about your essence. It's that you've expressed it. You've written it, you've danced it, you've played it on musical instruments or something. That's why it's meaningful. And that's why the cosmos is meaningful. Now, one other thing then, the last thing here, is this first fundamental also, though, says that all these forms manifest within the framework of a particular structure. The subject-object, an objective world distinguishable from a subjective self. So let's try another experiment. Same thing. Close your eyes. Imagine someone's face. Now, is there a sense that someone's looking at that face? Now, open your eyes. And look around at all the sensory objects in the room here. It seems like someone's observing them. To manifest, to realize, is to put something out there in a certain sense. The distinction is not just the distinction between the inside of the circle and the outside of the circle, when I draw a circle on the blackboard. There's automatically an observation of the circle. So it seems like there's a distinction between the observer and the thing observed. But this distinction also is imaginary according to mystics. There's nothing wrong with it. 
as long as we understand it's imaginary. It is the way the divine realizes itself. Consciousness realizes its potentiality. Consciousness realizes all its forms. It's the way consciousness plays. Just like the way that an actor plays a role is to assume the personhood of that role and then go out on stage and play it. And if an actor has to play several parts in a play, they have to be very distinguished. In fact, they have to go backstage, change clothes, change their character, come out and play a different part. But we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that it's a play, that it's imaginary. That's the key here. So, both the objects of perception and the subject who perceives them are creations of this power to imagine. And they are not absolutely real. They have a quasi-reality. And what is absolutely real is the underlying consciousness which both does and is aware of this. That's what this fundamental is pointing to. Now, as I said before, the purpose of stating a principle like this, a fundamental, is not just as a philosophical exercise, but it's really to become a guide to your own inquiry. Many people go on a spiritual path and they're looking for God or they're looking for the divine or they're looking for Brahman or they're whatever they're looking for. They think it's someplace else. Maybe not physically someplace else. They think it's someplace else in time. They think, oh, well, when I learn how to get into high states of samadhi, then I'll contact this or whatever. But the fundamentals pointing in the other direction. The absolute reality is not out there in any sense at all. It's in here. If we have to use some sort of metaphor, and even that's not quite correct. It's in here, it's around here, it's through here, it's above here, below here. It envelops and embraces all, all the time. Wherever you are, any state, whether you're nice and calm and tranquil and peaceful, or whether you're being mugged and are horrified. So any time's a good time for inquiry, investigate, to look into it. The real question then for practice is, having read this fundamental, what is this consciousness that is absolutely real, that is the basis of everything, the creative power behind everything? What is it? Just pursue that question. If you find the answer to that, you can forget all the rest. That's it. That's enlightenment. As Huang Po, uh, an old Chinese Buddhist, said, only awake to the one mind, and there is nothing whatsoever to be attained. So that's my little exposition of the first fundamental this morning. Any questions or comments? Yeah. I was just thinking, if a fully enlightened person were to perceive that Tibetan bell, would they necessarily collapse the wave function of the bell? Or would they perceive it with space and wave? 
it's a misconception about quantum mechanics that the wave function has any sort of manifest existence. It is simply a mathematical structure. So I guess another way to ask is, would a fully enlightened person be able to perceive that as just space and uh, energy interacting? No, a fully enlightened person perceives it for what it is. And you know what? Which is space and energy. No, no. The Buddhists have a very nice term for this. It's suchness. Right. Ever heard that? Tathata. No more. Anything else is an elaboration. It's space, it's light. The mind's now creating all these distinctions. Do you see what I mean? So would, would you be able to, the transparency of it, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. Could would enlightened being perceive the transparency of the thing? That the solidness of it wouldn't... No, wait a minute. You're looking at it. Mm-hmm. See, the problem isn't that there's something you're missing about how to think about it. The problem is you're thinking about it too much. Or let me put it this way. You're not separating your thoughts about it from the actual presentation. This is it. The suchness of it. So when we start thinking about space and non-space, we're doing what Anandamoyamai says, right? Now we're, we're saying, well, is there space? There's not space. Where does it exist? All those things we're adding in. As a form appears in consciousness, there is the first instant appearance that is not separated from that consciousness from which it comes. There isn't time. The mind hasn't had time. It's it's just there. The mind starts then dividing things up, as the Tao Te Ching says. Names come in and cut things up. The trick here to see the way a mystic sees is not a new way of cutting it up, but to drop below that level where the mind comes in. Now, there's no problem with the mind coming in, but to see that, then to see the mind come in, to recognize, oh, that, then there's imagination elaborating, and then maybe elaborations on that, all of which in their own right are fun and interesting and colorful and part of the dance. You know. So then you would perceive the solidness of it because it is solid, but also that spacious quality to it because it is. Now, this is interesting right here. I'm not picking on you, by the way, but see, right now you're not perceiving the solidness of it. Why not? <laughs> well, what, what does solid mean to you? I mean... That you're able to hold it in your hand. Yeah, but that's not happening to you. That's the mind saying, oh, that's a gong. It must be solid. I've touched gongs before. In fact, you'd be quite shocked if you came over here and you put your hand and went through it, or if I did that. <gasps> and then right away the mind would start trying to figure out what happened. Oh, it must be a holographic image projected. Because it's not fitting what you're used to. So the mind is always constructing, creating a world out of imagination. I'm avoiding answering your question directly because I'm trying to direct you to get below that kind of inquiry. I and mean, that's an interesting inquiry at a beginning level to, you know, analyze things. But the purpose of that inquiry from mystic's point of view is not to arrive at a new theory, but to see that all theories can only be relative. So at a certain point, you want to stop trying to figure out what a Gnostic sees. You want to go look. It's simpler than we imagine. That's our problem. We always move in the direction of complication. But it's a simplifying, if that helps at all.
Any other questions? When thought occurs, or thought arises, and that's the same same as like the um, it blocks out consciousness, correct? That it is. Um, I guess that just occurred to me. Like I was always trying to see images of how it was blocking out, and I guess it never. It seemed to uh, mean more to me that somehow I could work more with thought, using thought, as seeing that as being blocking consciousness. I guess I don't know what's what's a good way to work with that or trying to see that better. It's to look directly at thought. Now it's a little crude to say thought blocks consciousness. You actually can't block consciousness. It seems to block consciousness. That's the effect it has. It's a, it's a magic trick, though. I mean, there is no such thing as an absence, really, of consciousness, the way we're talking about it. But the, the way to work with it is to look directly at thought, you know, whenever you can, to really observe thought very, very objectively, to see what is thought. Thoughts go through our minds all day long, but what are they? For instance, do they have any uh, solidity? What color is the thought? What does it smell like? Does it have a perfume, an odor? Are there smelly thoughts and uh, fragrant thoughts? In that sense, you can use the mind in, that, in, in an analytic way, but you have to be looking at the object that you're trying to get to the bottom of. And thought is a wonderful one. You treat it just like an object like this. Thought itself has its suchness, nature, just like a gong. This seemed to have power, too, the power of thought. Tremendous power. And that's why thought's such a big problem on a spiritual path. That's why a lot of spiritual practices are learning to detach from thought. Not to get rid of thought, but to become an observer of thought just for that very reason. So. Well, I was just going to say, when we did the picture of the person on the blank, um, what I got is that it's consciousness um, observe, you know, observing through us its creation, and we are part of that creation. Uh, Ibn Arabi describes the Gnostic as and let me preface this by saying this is to um, to counter a very prevalent and subtle idea that people have that when they become a Gnostic, the self is going to become all-powerful. The, the self is going to be the creator of everything. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. That I'm going to realize that I am doing all this, I, ego, I. So he says, no, he says, it's really the other way around. He says, to be a true, complete, and full Gnostic is to be such an absolute slave to God that there is not one impulse of what he calls lordship, egotism, not one little bit of claiming anything for yourself. You are just the pure form through which God hears and sees. And in the Bible, it said that no one sees God and lives. But there are other places where it said people have seen God, so there's a contradiction, you know. So both Jewish and Christian mystics have picked up on this, and they say it's true. You can't see God and live. You have to die. And then God is the seeing, the hearing. Do you see what I mean?
A lot of mystical teachings are designed, and none of them can give you the whole truth, but they're designed to balance some false idea. So in Hinduism, for instance, there's this emphasis on self-realization. You realize you are Brahman. This is all true and so forth, but it also can lead to this idea that, that the ego is somehow Brahman and going to discover it's Brahman and going to be able to sit around and change the weather and do all these things, you know? So a, a nice antidote to that is to realize, no, this is about being an absolute slave. Such a servant that you're not even consciously choosing to be a servant because a true slave doesn't even choose to be a slave. You see what I mean? Any other comments or questions? Well, let's bring the formal part of the morning to a close. You're welcome to stay and have some tea and check out the library. Until we meet again, peace to you all.